Good morning. How you guys doing? Doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 16. That's where we are. Working our way, kind of uh, hit and miss through the book of Psalms. And uh, good to have you with us. Boy, that new building is looking good. Oh, my goodness. And uh, if you're new with us, we're going to be moving into a, a brand new building here really, really soon. We're excited about it. And this, this campus will just be a fond memory. <laughs> A very fond memory, but uh, it's, it's looking outstanding, and so it won't be long now. Good to have you with us. Um, we got a great text here today. I, I say that every week, though, don't I? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's really a wonderful text. Psalm 16 is where we are. Hey, how many are really, really thankful for air conditioning? Woo-hoo-hoo! How many are really, really, really thankful that uh, the people sitting around you wear deodorant? Woo-hoo-hoo! I, I, w- I was going around checking out the rooms, uh, the, the kids' classes. Uh, there's a lot of great things happening with our children here on the campus, our high school and junior high, and, and the kids went into the elementary for the first service. A little boy came up to me, and he said, you want to smell under my arm? Uh, no, thank you. And uh, so, hey, good to have you with us. Great study here this morning. Here's the summary statement we've been using for this teaching series through the book of Psalms. This Psalm series is going to take us to our new building, and then we've got a brand new teaching series. We're calling it City on a Hill. We're going to be working through the Sermon on the Mount, where it talks about how we are to be a city on a hill, that uh, we let our light shine before men so that they see our Father in heaven. They come to Him. They're attracted to Him because of our efforts, and we'll be talking a lot about really what kind of an impact we're going to have with our new building and how God wants to use us in that place. But as we've been working our way through the book of Psalms, here's a summary statement. There's no greater prescription for what ails our soul than deep communion with God. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. Let me give you a quick uh, pop quiz. I've taught this probably in the last six months or so. So those of you that have been with us probably know the answer to these two questions. I want you to do this. And by the way, when we get into our new building, it'll be a little easier to do this because we do this from time to time. I'll have you turn and talk to the folks around you. We're going to actually have tables and chairs. It'll actually be set up a little bit more like a sports bar, but it'll be easier to kind of do this. I've never liked the setting, kind of a theater setting like this. I've always preferred more of a setting that was a bit more comfortable. So this is what I'm going to have you do this morning. Turn and talk to the folks around you. And here's my two questions. Here's the first one is what's the most frequent command in the Bible? What's the most frequent command in the Bible? And then this next one also goes along with that. What is the most frequent promise in the Bible? What's the most frequent command? What's the most frequent promise in the Bible? Because it goes along with what we're talking about this morning. Real quick, do that. Turn to the folks sitting around you. If you don't know them, get to know them real quick, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, guys, what do you think? What do you think? What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Yell it out to me. Okay, love your neighbor. They asked. They said, uh, "Love your neighbor," and wrong. Uh, that's a good one, though. In the first service, we had somebody love, love, or love your neighbor, or whatever. That's not the the most frequent command. The most frequent command I heard it out there: "Fear not, don't be afraid." Three hundred and sixty-five times. Yes covers every day of the year. I love it. And guess what? The the most frequent promise in the Bible goes with it. It's awesome. So it says, fear not. Most frequent promise is, I will be with you. 
I will be with you always. Fear not, because I will be with you. Fear not, I will be with you. I think it's uh, safe to assume that everybody here wants to be happy. Everybody on this planet Earth wants to be happy. And nothing will, will destroy your happiness like fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, all these things that bombard us. And listen to me, nothing will dispel the fear, anxiety, worry from your life and replace it with happiness like the presence of God, like knowing and experiencing God. That's what Psalm 16 is about. It's about we're going to learn how to practice the presence of God, how to experience God in our lives. And the promise of God's presence, and there's plenty of scripture that gives us that. That's, as I said, it's the most, most frequent promise in the Bible. I will be with you. One of the places is Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, where he says, I will never, ever, ever, literally in the Hebrew, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. And the promise of God's presence is not some abstract theological concept, but a vibrant, moment-by-moment intimate connection with a deeply personal God. Now listen to me. We're going to pray. We're going to dive into this text. I know some of you are going through a real tough time. I know you. I know what's going on. I know what's happening in your life. God is closer than you think and more eager to connect with you than you could ever dream or imagine and nothing will bring you greater fullness of joy and dispel the darkness and the doubt and the difficulty and the fear and the anxiety and the stress like his presence. So you guys ready to learn how we can do that? How can we experience his presence? How can we really get to know this idea, this concept of practicing his presence? That's where we're headed here this morning. And so would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to pray Ephesians three sixteen through 19, and I'll... Uh, pray through that and kind of add to it a little bit of as it relates to this topic this morning, and then we'll read our text and unpack our notes. Father God, we, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would know your presence, that you are here to meet with us this morning. And that your presence gives us fullness of joy, dispels those things that would kind of, no doubt about it, wreck our joy in you. That, that God, your presence will dispel the, the stress and the anxiety and the worry and the fear. God, we pray that we being rooted and established in your love this morning through the study of your word, that we may have the power together with all of your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Let me see if I can kind of work through this text. There's a couple of questions. You can see them on your notes. What is the key to fullness of life? The key to fullness of life is practicing the presence of God, or fullness of joy. Fullness of life, too. But, uh, but the second question is, what does it mean to practice the presence of God? Uh, so let me read through the text. Wonderful text. And so it begins, verse 1, chapter 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. Now, I want us to read verse 8 together and aloud. This is one of our key verses here this morning. You guys ready? One, two, three. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He's given us a definition of what it means to practice the presence of God. Very significant verse in what we're talking about here this morning. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Notice the the result. Not only will you not be shaken... But notice this, therefore my heart will be glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Let's read the last verse together. Wonderful verse. These are great memory verses here. Here we go. Let's see if we can do this one a little bit louder than we did the last one. You guys ready? Sit up in your seat, ready to go. If the person next to you isn't doing it very loud, just punch them really hard like this. Go, boom. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Wow. Those are wonderful verses. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And you thought, and you thought that somehow you were sacrificing the pleasures of life when you were to follow Jesus. Did you have any idea who you're following? Oh my goodness, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. Oh my goodness, I want that. How do we get that? By practicing his presence, by understanding his presence. And so let's look at this first thing. What is the key to fullness of life? Practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. Now, here's, here's a, there are many verses that would be good cross-references. I didn't put this on your notes. Write this down as a, as a cross-reference. 1 Peter 1.8 on your notes. Right there. Now, this is what 1 Peter has to say. Remember Peter, one of the 12, also one of the three that was extra close to Jesus. So you got the 12 that are close, but then you have three that are really extra close to Jesus. And in his writing, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Pretty breathtaking in, in how he's describing this. And so in First and Second Peter, he's writing to second-generation Christians, those that were not eyewitnesses, but heard the message, gave their life to Jesus, had an amazing experience as a result of that. And this is what he says in First Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now... You believe in him, and what is the result? And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In other words, he's saying, it has so revolutionized your life, you can't even put words to it. 
And it is a, there's a weightiness. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. There's a weightiness to it that it dispels the issues of you. It helps you in facing the issues of your life because you're thinking, hey, if I have him, I can face anything. That's the idea of glory. Unspeakable, glorious joy. We'll, we'll define joy here in a minute, a little bit uh, of what that means. And so now, let's go back to the text. Many believe, the commentators that I studied from, and I believe too, that David is facing death or his life is being threatened. And we know that by verse 1 of our text, he says, uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. But then also notice in verse 10, He says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, this is where uh, the spirits went, departed from their bodies. It's a place of death. It's kind of a general term in the Old Testament. But he's saying, hey, you know what? Even if I face death, God, you're not going to abandon me. You're going to take care of me. I'm okay. I'm in your hands. So, So many believe that. And yet what's amazing about this, in spite of the fact that maybe he's even facing death or threats to his life, yet the atmosphere of this Um, psalm is amazing. It's about joy. It's about fullness of joy. It's about the presence of God. Now, how does he do that? I'm going to have you do this again. I want you to turn to the folks next to you. And if you've been with us for a real long time, I taught this years ago, back when we were in the old nightclub. So this is a long time ago. I don't think I remember teaching it since we've been out here at the school. But um, I taught you the difference between, and I want you to discuss this with the folks around you. What is the difference between a thermometer versus a thermostat in how you live life. There's a difference between the two. So how you're facing life, because David is facing life more like a thermostat here in dealing with life as opposed to a thermometer. The major difference between the two, and all of us tend to live our lives in one of those two big categories. So real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you, real quick. Okay, how many, uh, how many remember from uh, old days me teaching thermometer versus thermostat? Okay, there's just a few. A few of you kind of remember that. Okay, here we go. So let's talk about that. So a, th- a thermometer would be reactive. So it's really the difference between being reactive versus proactive. How many are maybe a little bit more familiar with those terms? So when it comes to the circumstances of life, we can tend to be either reactive or proactive as it relates to the circumstances. So a thermostat would be more reactive. It's affected by the, the circumstances. So the, uh, a thermostat or a thermo- thermometer goes up or down based on the, the weather, based on the temperature. And uh, so, for instance, so then a person that would be reactive to their circumstances, in other words, they're more of a thermometer versus a thermostat, is that if the weather's bad, then they're having a bad day. And it might not just be weather. Maybe it's your, your family. It could be your job. When your job's going good, skippity-doo-dah, skippity-day, everything's wonderful. I mean, so everything's just, but it's based on your go up and down based on your environment, based on your circumstances, to where a person that's proactive, they're more like a thermostat, they carry their weather with them. 
So this is the little bit of the idea of what uh, David, David is carrying his weather with us. He says, hey, I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. It doesn't matter if, the, if there's even a threat to my life. I'm okay. I have fullness of joy in him. He's bigger than anything I'm facing. And, and what we learn from this really is that there's this word called responsibility. Now, oftentimes we want to blame our circumstances for the way we are, but it's not the events in life that determine how we feel and respond to those events. It's actually our evaluation of those events that determine that. It's really about taking responsibility for our lives. God has given us this wonderful, uh, this wonderful gift. It's called responsibility. If you took the word responsibility and cut it in half and put the back end in the front end, you could actually get the definition of responsibility. It would be ability to choose your response. Responsibility is about you have the ability. God has given you the ability to choose your response. You can't control everything that happens to you, but this is what you can control. You can control how you're going to evaluate those events in your life. You can't control the, a lot of the stuff that's out there. In fact, what you're going to find out is that you're pretty much not in control of anything, really, for the most part, except for your attitude, except for how you will choose to respond to your circumstances. Now, let me give you a, a definition and the Bible will use the word happiness and joy kind of back and forth throughout. And so, but there's different ways that we base our, what our, our happiness is based on. Now, I've in the past defined them differently. Happiness is based on happenings. So circumstances, it's more, more of a thermometer kind of an approach to life. And joy would be more of a thermostat approach to life. And so happiness is delight in the blessings more than the blesser. So there's a, there's a kind of a happiness that's based on circumstances, and then there's, there's a kind of happiness that's based on the one who's in control of all circumstances, God. So you can build your happiness on the blessings or the blesser. And, uh, and so that's the difference between the two. In fact, this is what's so amazing about this joy. When you begin to study the word joy, the, the word joy is, is a buoyancy in our life. Though life may push you down, it won't keep you down because you'll keep coming up because your happiness, your joy, your pleasure in life is not predicated upon your circumstances as much as that they are dependent upon the pleasure you find in the eternal God who has given you amazing privileges such as his presence, his promises, his peace, his power, regardless of what you're going through. And there's this joy, there's a buoyancy that though you're facing difficulties, when you begin to understand this, there's this buoyancy that keeps bringing you back up. You get pushed down, you just keep coming back up because I have always, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. See, that's what you're learning to practice. Now, my wife has taught me tons on this topic. I tend to be, and I tend to have always lived my life more based on my circumstances, more of a thermometer than a thermostat. I'm the guy that sweats the small stuff. Now, the bigger stuff I can usually handle, it's the small stuff. Someone cuts me off, the lines are too long at the store. You know, all this stuff, it just, it would stress me out. Well, my wife and I are on this flight, and I don't know where we were headed. I, I don't remember all the details, but we were sitting there. This was back in our days when we were binging on Dr. Pepper. And, uh, and so they offered us something to drink, and we said, uh, yeah, we'd like to have Dr. Pepper. You have Dr. Oh, yeah, we have Dr. Pepper. In fact, would you like the whole, whole, the whole can? They go, yeah, the whole can. Ho, ho, ho. And so they gave us the can plus the cup, and they, we set it on our trays, 
and as we were sitting in the trays, we were comfortable, we were talking, interacting, having a lot of fun. Uh, the pilot decided that, hey, we need to go up in elevation. The plane needs to kick up a bit because we're running into some turbulence. We didn't think anything of it. Little did I know, little by little, my can of Dr. Pepper was scooting down the tray because it didn't have the indentation in the trays. You know how where that indentation is? It didn't have one. And it came down and flipped right into my lap. And I had Dr. Pepper all over my, right here. And uh, I, was, I was stressed. I was sweating the small stuff. I was like, oh, I was so mad. And what really made me mad is my wife busted a gut laughing. <laughs> I mean, she was like, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so, oh, it's not that funny. And just, it just put coals to the fire. And that was just, it just stressed me out that much more. I was just really ticked off. Wait, and you're not even, I'm going to have to walk out of this plane like this. You don't even care. And uh, so she, then she felt bad. She tried to hold, you know how you can't stop from laughing? I think it just made her laugh that much more. She's like, she's trying to stop and she's trying to help me. And so we took the can, which there's still a little bit left in the can, and put it over on her tray. And as she helping me, little did we know, both of those cans slid down into her lap. <laughs> And then I busted a gut laughing. And, and, then, and then I realized, hey, you know what? And we both just laughed, laughed about it. And then as we walked off the plane, we were both had Dr. Pepper right there. But, but she's always taught me, and she's been always one that has been more of, a, more of a thermostat as opposed to a thermometer. She was very proactive. And there's, even to this day, she, she kind of helps me to chill out a little bit. Hey, dude, dude, it's not that important. It's not that big of a deal. It's no big deal. I mean... Uh, and I've told you this before, I would wreck vacations because I had to get there on time. And Come on, everybody, and we're not stopping. You know, carry a bottle with you. You're going to have to pee in a bottle on the way. That's messed up, isn't it? Police. <laughs> yeah, it's messed up. But we would, nowadays I'm pretty chilled, but she's taught me a lot of this, and I understood there's just so much that we get stressed out about that you don't need to be stressed out about. By the way, especially if you know that he is with you. He's with you. He loves you. Now, there's a guy, uh, 17th century French monk known as Brother Lawrence. That's the name that he went by. He wrote a small book that has become a Christian classic. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. Probably one of, my, one of my favorite books I'll pick up from time to time and go through. And you probably want to get more of a modern translation because this is like back in the 17th century, so the language is a little bit archaic. It's a little bit hard to understand. But it is a manual of sorts for anyone who wants to learn how to walk continually in the presence of God. I'm going to read to you some excerpts from that book, and I want you to listen to, to what he's saying here. We should practice God's presence through a continuing conversation with him. Notice how he defines that, practicing God's presence, continuing conversation with him. That it would be shameful to trade such a relationship for trivial foolishness. And that we should feed our souls on the highest thoughts of God. We can find deep joy, he said, by simply being with the Lord. The greatest pains and joys the world has to offer can't compare to the experience of walking with God. For Brother Lawrence, work time had no difference, was really no difference than prayer time. And he worked in a monastery kitchen. Because a lot of times you think, oh, he was in a monastery? Yeah, I could be happy. I'm away from all the stress. And yet there was a lot of stress going on here. But listen to what he says. Even in the noise and the clatter of the kitchen, with different people calling for different things all at once, I still know God's presence with just as much real peace 
as if I were on my knees at communion. I know some of you are saying that you have a house full of kids. You're going, yeah, but what about 2 o'clock in the morning? I'm up with a sick kid. I'm sleep deprived. I've got a pile of laundry. You know, everything's coming, caving in on my life. And yet there's that sense that, God, if I set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I, I believe that. I believe what he's saying there. And yet in, in spite of all of the stresses, whatever, whatever you can think up in your mind, whatever you have faced, he's saying you can have an experience with God in the midst of that as if you were on your knees before him talking and interacting with him. That's why it's called practicing the presence of God. He goes, he goes on and says, I have no idea how Christians can live satisfied lives without practicing the presence of God. I rest with him, with him in the deep center of my soul as much as I can. I'm not afraid of anything when I'm with him in that way and I know I'd fall flat on my face if I turned from him even a fraction of an inch. Wow. So I think that's, he's describing the Christian life here. Now, let's, uh, let me walk through this. So what does it mean to practice the presence of God? And we've, we've defined that for you. So in his, in his presence is fullness of joy. So the key to fullness of joy is practicing the presence of God. What does that mean? I've set the Lord always before me. So what... What dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotions, what moves you to action. That's what he's saying. I've, he, he's at the center of my attention throughout the day. I'm constantly going back and thinking about him. I'm talking to him. I'm interacting with him. I have this ongoing relationship. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. Isn't that interesting? Why would he say right hand? How many here are any lefties? Any lefties here in the house? Lefties? You guys are all messed up. Yeah. No, you're not. Actually, that's interesting that the Bible talks about right hand because most people are right-handed, and that's the strength. So your strength is probably on the left, although lefties can be ambidextrous, and usually they, can, they think better on both sides of the brain. So it's really interesting, and they, they tend to be a little more creative. But it's interesting he uses right hand because he's at my right hand. That has to do with strength. That has to do with your lead, how you lead out in life, priorities, passion, your purpose in life. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I know that God is with me. He is for me, not against me. He's always there. I'm interacting with him. I'm talking with him. He's walking with me. And so that's, that's that idea. So let me give you some insights here. You can fill more of the blanks in here. Here's the next point on your notes. These are insights that are from the text and then also from the fuller context of Scripture. Not only does everything I have come from God... But life has no meaning apart from God. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. So let's go back to the text. Keep your Bibles open. And so he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now check this out. This is a pretty amazing thought. I, I was just meditating on this this last week. I have no good apart from you. I like my kids. I have three. Got six grandkids. That's pretty cool. But he's saying, apart from you, those, are, those aren't really any, any good. I mean, he's kind of saying like, in other words, here's, here's the idea. And, and I know that people will say this. I've had people and I've countered people. And I know people that come into Desert Breeze. We have a number of people that come in here kicking the tires, checking it out, trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, wondering not if God really exists. And we love having you here. We think that's really cool that you'd come in and, and hang out with us. But, but let, me, let me help you to kind of uh, use a little logic here. If we came from nothing, you know, some people say, yeah, random chance, unlimited time, we're an accident. Then when you die, you're going to nothing. And everything in between, 
nothing. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how big your car is, how nice your house is. It doesn't matter. If we came from nothing and going to nothing, eventually that's gone and you're going to pass it on to somebody else. And eventually they'll pass that on to somebody else and then somebody else and you're just going off into oblivion? No, he's saying, listen, God, not only everything that I have comes from you, but you're the one that gives me meaning and purpose in life. That my grandkids and my kids and all of this, it's all about these relationships are all gifts from you and ultimately pointers to you so that we can live for your glory. I gave you a couple verses there to kind of help you to walk through that. Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live, we move, we have our being. In essence, your breath your very breath, your very heartbeat is based on him. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Hey, wait a minute, I worked really hard for what I got. Yeah, you worked hard because he gave you the, op- the opportunities and the abilities. Yeah, but I went, and went to school. Yeah, he gave you all of that, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, but I had to knock on a few doors. Yeah, he gave you the ability to knock on a few doors to open those doors up. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And then Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So as we learn to practice the presence of God, not only does everything we have come from God, but but life has no meaning apart from God. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why do I draw air into our lungs? Is to make much of him to live for his glory because that's where we're going to find our greatest satisfaction. Here's the next point. Spiritual growth is simply increasing my capacity through spiritual disciplines to practice the presence of God. So why are we here today? To increase our capacity to learn how to practice his presence, to walk with God, to enjoy him, to love him, to follow him. It's not about getting more of God, but God getting more of me. How do we do that? Through spiritual disciplines. Notice verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Why would he say that? The saints, those are God's people. In essence, he's saying, I just love hanging out with God's people. By the way, if you're a Christian, If you're walking with Jesus, you're going to love hanging out with God's people. And by the way, nothing will help to increase your capacity to experience, you know, the practice of his presence like hanging out with God's people. I mean, and so as you do that, and that's that's one of many spiritual disciplines and... um, and I gave you a few other cross-references there. Acts 2, 42, that's actually supposed to be 47, not 27 on your notes. You might want to correct that. But those are the early believers, and they were consistently diligent in the apostles' teaching in the study of God's word in the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, uh, church ordinances, uh, prayer, fellowship. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 talks about uh, physical disciplines. Those are important, but spiritual disciplines are more important. So we become like the people we hang out with. I mean, it's the essence of discipleship. Let me read to you some more excerpts from this book. I'll read just from time to time. So listen to this. In the end, it doesn't take skill or a high IQ to come to God, just a heart totally sold out to the Lord, devoted to him alone. I don't know of a better, sweeter life than an unbroken conversation with God. God's presence has become so much a part of my life that it has become the source of nonstop comfort and peace. In fact, for the past 30 years, the joy has been so intense that once in a while, I've had to tone it down around people who wouldn't understand. Is that crazy? Fullness of joy. When I realized that God had placed such a great treasure in my heart, I didn't have to go out looking for it anymore. I didn't worry about finding it anymore 
because God's beautiful treasure was all there right in front of me. Like an unlimited expense account, I have permission to take and use any part of this treasure I want. We are so blind and should pity those who are satisfied with so little. God has the never-ending treasure. Next point on your notes. So anything more important to us than God is an idol and will control us as we seek it disappoint us if we get it and devastate us if we lose it. So if I love anything more than I love God is, is idolatry. And it, for instance, if I, if I find my sense of identity more in my job than in God, I'm going to pursue my job at the expense of my family. It's going to control my life. If sports are my identity, it's going to control my life. It's going to dominate, dominate my life. It's going to disappoint me because it will never meet the need that ultimately only God can meet within us, and then it devastates us when we lose it. That's why career-ending injuries for these super athletes sometimes can be really devastating for them. They have to shorten their their career because of of an injury, and they're devastated. Okay, so how do you identify your idols? In fact, let me read this verse. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So how do you identify your idols? Exodus 23 tells us it's the number one on the top ten list. You guys know what the number one is on the top ten list, the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice he didn't give you a third option? You'll either worship and serve the living God or you will have another God. You shall have no other God before me. You will have a God. It'll either be the living God or a counterfeit God. So how do you identify whether or not you have a counterfeit God? I've taught you this for a long time. We go over it quite a bit. You look at your inordinate emotions. Inordinate emotions. And this is how it works. If a good thing is threatened, how many would say being married is really a good thing? Okay. You guys are a little hesitant raising your hand there. It's like, okay, if I have to, my wife's watching right now, and I better raise my hand. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing. If it is a good thing, if a good thing is threatened, you're going to be anxious. And there are times when you feel like your marriage is being threatened. You need to step in. You need to do something about it. But if that good thing, listen to me, has become a God thing, you're not just going to be anxious. You're going to be paralyzed I see it all the time. I see people that have built their life on a, on a specific thing, a job, or their kids, and they go south, and so goes their identity. So you look for inordinate emotions. So here's this. So if a good thing is, is blocked, hey, he promised you that raise. I understand that. And he gave it to his son-in-law who works for the company, and that's not right. I understand that. And yeah, you should be angry. You probably need to talk to the, to the boss about that and kind of try to work through that. And so a good thing, if a good thing is blocked, you're going to become angry. But if a good thing has become a God thing, guess what? You're not just going to become angry. You're going to become bitter. If you really look at bitterness, it's really rooted in some form of idolatry, something that you're saying, I can't live without this. If a good thing is lost, you'll be sad you know, maybe the kids don't turn out the way you think they should or they're not performing up to your level, your standard. But if that good thing 
becomes a God thing, you're not just sad. You're going to be depressed and maybe even suicidal. I've seen people commit suicide because of they lost a God thing. They couldn't live with that. So anything more important to us than God is an idol and will control us as we seek it, disappoint us if we get it and devastate us if we lose it. So here's, here's my challenge. If you can't imagine being happy unless something changes in your life, if you're thinking, hey, if only this would change in my life, if my husband would step up, if my wife would step up, if my kids would step up, if my job was any different, if you can't imagine yourself being happy unless something changes, you won't more than likely have an idol because in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Here's the next one. Every aspect of my life is important to God and he is always at work in my life whether I see him or not. And it's going to get a little bit tougher here. You guys were getting really quiet as I was talking about idols because we all struggle with that. Now I'm going to really hit a little bit lower. This is going to hurt. This is something that I struggle with too. And look at verses 5 and 6. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. How many women remember going on a, tri- uh, on a retreat a number of years ago, and that was actually one of the mugs that you, you got? It was really, that's a wonderful, my wife gave me a little more insight on that. That's actually a wonderful text. Lord, you are my chosen portion. In life, that's what I want more than anything. I want you. You're my cup. You're the one that nourishes me and, and nourishes my soul. My soul longs for you. That's in essence what he's saying there. And then in verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's using metaphorical language of when they divided portions of the promised land. Remember the promised land, milk and honey? And they divided the portions of the promised land by line and distributed by lot. And this is what David is saying. It's pretty profound as I begin to study into this a little more detail. David is thinking of how wisely and wonderfully God plans every detail of his life. And he compares it to inheriting a prosperous piece of the promised land in a magnificent setting entirely comprised of good things. So he's saying, God, the way you have ordered my life, oh my goodness, this is like having the best piece of land in the, in the land of milk and honey. And I know that some of you don't feel that way. As, you've looked at, as you look at your life, you're going, oh my goodness, things should have gone a whole lot better. And I, I was seeking God through all of this, and it didn't go quite how I had thought or planned. What's the point here? Here's the point is that the Lord is what I want more than anything, and he is all I need to be satisfied in life. Is first of all, what he's saying in verse 5. But what he's saying here, and because he's praising God, he's obviously came to a place in his life. When you're able to praise God for the ordering of your life, that is the things that he brings or allows into your life, you're showing confidence in his love, wisdom, and power. See, complaining betrays a lack of confidence in his love, wisdom, and power. Are you, guys, are you guys tracking with me? Because I know that some of you have had some hardship and some of you are going through hardship right now. And I'm telling you, a lot of that stuff is not gonna make sense on this side of eternity. But I will guarantee you that when you take your last breath on earth and your first breath in heaven and you come face to face with the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you, your eyes will be opened and you will know as you are fully known and you will say, oh my goodness, you are perfect in love. 
You're amazing in wisdom, and you're unlimited in your power. Oh, God, you knew exactly what you were doing. I doubted. I struggled. And so what he's saying is, God, I'm cool. You hold my lot in your hands. The things you allow into my life, I know they're filtered through who you are and your character. And so I praise you. I can't make heads or tails this side of eternity, but I praise you because you are in control. I trust your love, wisdom, and power in my life. That's, that's amazing. I mean, when I begin to read that, there's things in my life. And, and so as I, as I looked at that, he, in fact, he even is saying here, he holds the title to my heart's deepest allegiance, loyalty, trust, and love. Now listen to this. This has always been a convicting statement too. This is by Tim Keller. He says, worry is belief that God is going to get it wrong. And bitterness is believing that he did get it wrong. That's hardcore, isn't it? And yet, what we need to do is we need to run into his arms. We need to be able to get to this place where, where this, I mean, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. You're the one that calls the shots. Ultimately, you're, you're, you're the script writer of my life. The lines have fallen for me in a pleasant places. I can't make heads or tails out of why my, you know, my son came after me or why this happened or why that happened. But, God, you do everything well, and I trust your love, wisdom, and power. That's what he's saying here. So, Oh, Lord, help, help us, help us in that, help us in that to see that. Help us to see that in our, in our struggles, in our, in our problems. Let me, give you, uh, oh, let me give you the next one. I can learn to recognize and enjoy God's presence by, by living in the, in the moment, by learning to live in the moment. You know why we need to live in the moment? Most of you aren't even right here. here. You're here, but you're not really here, Okay. Some of us, and that's kind of how I live. I live kind of a little bit like that. If you had any idea of my thoughts up here, even as I'm up here, you know, and I look out over the audience, and my, my thoughts are just like crazy sometimes, and sometimes it takes a little bit more caffeine to just settle my thoughts down. <laughs> Seriously. They say for ADD people, just load up on the caffeine. Won't be able to ever sleep, but other than that, who needs sleep? No, I, actually, I can sleep. With that, I can drink coffee and go right to sleep. But, but my thoughts are just crazy, you know, sometimes as they kind of, as I'm working through, you know, all the issues of, of, of my life and all that's around me, and it's just kind of crazy. But I, I oftentimes I'm not living in the moment, and I miss God. I miss God in that moment, and you miss God in that moment. And, and this, there's a moment right now, right now, right here, right in this place. You're going to miss God if you don't stop regretting the past Stop worrying about the future. Live right now in the moment. God has brought you here this morning so that you could encounter him and you could know. You could know his love and his wisdom and his power. You could know that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. There's an amazing story here. Uh, Genesis 28, Jacob, remember I talked about him a few weeks ago? He really jacked up his life. I mean, he betrayed his dad and his brother, and then he's on the run for his life. And he comes to a place, it's kind of a no-name place, but he lays his head down, he's got to sleep for the night, he lays his head down on a rock. That's crazy, isn't it? And he has a dream. No kidding. If you lay your head on a rock, you'll probably have a dream. (laughs) I don't know. But he has a dream, and in that dream, there's this ladder. You guys are familiar with Jacob's ladder, the story? And this ladder, there's angels ascending and descending. At the top of the ladder is, is Jesus. And here's what's amazing. He has this experience, this dream at night, and it tells us in Genesis 28, verse 16, listen to this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, 
surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How often do we go to church? How often do we go about our life? How often do we so distract ourselves by living in the past or living in the future? Or we can't handle, you know, those quiet times, so we crank up the radio or the TV or whatever, and we don't take out time and not realize that God is in this moment right now for us to encounter and to know and to experience in our lives. A couple more excerpts. These will be the last ones from... uh, from that book. With him, even the worst day can taste sweet. Without him, even something like winning the lottery would feel like the worst prison sentence. It's crazy. That's the presence of God. God is always near you and, and, and with you, so don't ignore him. It would be rude if friends stopped by to visit and you left them alone, wouldn't it? So why do, you, why do we ignore God? Don't forget him. Think about him all the time. Tell him you love him. Live and die with him because that is our incredible job description as Christians. It's actually our calling, our career, and we need to learn that if we, if we need to learn that if we don't know already. Here's the last, actually the second to the last point. When I fail to live in the moment, I can start again right away because every thought can either move me closer or further away from God. And so that's why he's saying, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Romans 8, 5 through 8, it says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So the flesh would be more of a self-centered life, self-absorbed life. It's all about me. And those who live according to the Spirit about being captivated by the beauty and the glory of God. God, no, life is all about you living for your glory. So those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So there's this ceaseless stream of thoughts running through your mind at lightning speed. Like I was saying, when I look out over the audience, sometimes these are kind of the thoughts. And For instance, if you yawn, please don't yawn where I can see it, okay? Go like this. I'm just kidding, because immediately there's a thought that comes to my mind. Am I boring? Is this message not meaty enough? And then immediately my mind goes, meaty, speaking of meat, what? Where am I going to go for lunch today? Is it going to be In-N-Out Burger or Five Guys? Wait a minute. The last time I went to Five Guys, I had the Cajun fries, and woo, they were too hot. Speaking of hot, boy, has it been hot out there. If you really followed the train of thought, some of you, and, and I know some of you think that you, that I talk faster then you can think, that's not true. You actually think faster than I can talk, way faster. And so that's just kind of how you... So what you have to do is, is it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And it says in Proverbs 23.7, as a person thinks within himself, then so is he. So what kind of thoughts are depressed people thinking? Depressing thoughts, woohoo! What about happy people? They're thinking happy thoughts. And it's much deeper than that, obviously, just trying to watch your thoughts because it's a lot of what we feed ourselves. What, are, what do we dwell our thoughts on? What are we feeding our thoughts regularly, consistently throughout the day and all those things? You, your thoughts are either leading to death or to life. Uh, uh, 
another quick quote. This is from, a, it's a great book, John Ortberg, God is Closer Than You Think. There's a chapter in here where he says, it's titled, A Beautiful Mind. It's based on the movie. How many have seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind? Really an interesting movie. This is what he says. He was hailed as one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. But at the height of his career, John Nash, Russell Crowe played John Nash in this movie. John Nash suffered a breakdown. In the movie, A Beautiful Mind, based on the book with the same title, we see the characters, we see the characters and hear the voices that exist only in his head, unconnected to reality. How many had to watch the movie again just to kind of make heads or tails out of the fact that he only sees this in his mind? Yeah, it was kind of an interesting movie. Had to kind of go back through. And so when he listened to them, they destroyed his relationships, distorted his perceptions, made him obsessive, irrational, and terrified. They led to death. He eventually grew better, thanks largely to a form of medication that was not available in the earlier, early, uh, early days of John Nash's illness. He was actually able to learn over time the art of discernment. He learned to test the voices to find out which ones were false and which ones were true. Nash speaks at one point in the film about how, in a way, his battle is the battle of all of us. I don't know if you remember the scene but they're getting ready to possibly bring him in to begin to teach at this university. And this is what he says. I'm, I'm not so different from you, he says to a friend. We all hear voices. We just have to decide which ones we are going to listen to. Now, John Ortberg continues on, and maybe this is where you are. This is what he says. We all hear voices. He says, two people suffer from cancer. One becomes bitter and despairing, while the other is a beacon of honesty and hope to the people around them. Their cancer is the same. The difference is in their minds. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. As it says, it's one of the cross-references that I... Gave you their 423 of Proverbs. Two people live in meager financial resources. One of them is consumed by envy and discontent. The other is radiant with gratitude and servanthood. Their net worth is the same. The difference is in their minds. It's what dominates their minds. You're going to walk in the spirit. You're going to walk in the flesh. What dominates your thoughts? Either the presence of God or about what you're struggling with. Two people reach the top of their organizations. One uses powerful for self-aggrandizement and control. The other uses his to enhance the lives of everyone in the community. Their titles are the same, the differences in their minds. Then he concludes with this thought here. Two people live in a universe where God is always present. One of them decides that in all my thoughts there is no room for God. The other says... I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. God offers his availability to all of us, the differences in our minds, in our thoughts. When I fail to live in the moment, I can start again right away because every thought can either move me closer or further away from God. Here's the last one. This is where we wrap it up. I will experience security and satisfaction to the degree I learn to practice the presence of God. Of course, we see that. I will not be shaken, fullness of joy. In a few weeks, we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 23, where it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because why? You are with me. You are with me. I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 91.1, I love that. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. 
You'll notice on the end of your notes, I said this, this is pretty, pretty significant, pretty big point, but both Peter and Paul in Acts tells us that these verses are about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually David speaking prophetically about Jesus not being abandoned in the grave and yet resurrecting, and that through faith in him, we can have fullness of joy by practicing the presence of God. It's only through Jesus and what he did, because all of our sin was placed upon him, and he gave us our righteousness, and now we have access into the throne room of God to experience his presence. And nothing like what it will be when we are there with him for all eternity, but we certainly get glimpses of that, and that's what we want more than anything. God, help us, help us, we pray, to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to learn to practice your presence Help us to see that everything we have comes from you. There's really no meaning in life apart from you. Help us to develop the spiritual disciplines that will help to increase that capacity. And God, help us to see, help us to see these idols that would interfere with our lives, that would interfere with this fullness of joy that we can find in you, and that every aspect of our life is important to you, that you're always at work and And we're not going to make heads or tails out of a lot of what comes into our lives, but that comes because you are loving and wise and all-powerful, and you love us, God, and you will see us through everything we face. God, help us to learn to recognize and enjoy your presence by living in the moment. And when we kind of find ourselves outside of that moment, God, bring us back, bring us back. May we set you always before us. Help us to learn that so that we can experience security and satisfaction in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let me uh, give you a blessing. Here's my blessing for you this next week. We're going to continue to work through this until we wrap this up and we head into our new place over there off of I-17. We're excited about that. But here's my blessing for you. May you this next week, unlike ever before, begin to practice verse 8, 16-8. I have set the Lord always before me that you would become more conscious of the fact that he is with you, he is for you, he is not against you, he loves you, he gave his life for you so that you could have access to God. And he has promised never to leave you or forsake you. That was bought with his blood. You can't foul that up. And so as you begin to continue to always set the Lord always before you, as you practice his presence, you will experience, my prayer for you is that you would experience more fullness of joy unlike you've ever experienced before. And you would know in your heart that at his right hand are pleasures evermore. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.